Uh, well, good evening, everybody. Uh, my name's Stuart Corbridge. I'm one of the pro-directors here at the LSE, and it's a very great pleasure on behalf of the school to welcome you all to tonight's event. And we extend a very special welcome to any students that are joining us, particularly from the LSE Summer School. Uh, it's a great pleasure and a great honour for the LSE to co-host tonight's event with BBC Radio 4. Shortly, I'll be handing over to Paul Mason, the economics correspondent of BBC Two's Newsnight programme, to give you a sense of the format for tonight's event and to introduce all of the speakers. If I might just uh, make a personal aside, one of the speakers, of course, is uh, Robert Skidelsky, who has, in my view, written one of the greatest biographies uh, of recent years, the three-volume biography of Lord Keynes. Um, and for myself, uh, speaking for myself, that is the single best biography that I've ever read. Um, Skidelsky, of course, will always be, sorry, Keynes will always be associated with Cambridge, a Freudian slip there. <laughs> um, and we should remember tonight, in the interests of balance, of course, that the debate between Keynes and Hayek also brings to bear uh, Friedrich von Hayek, who was a lecturer and a professor at this university, the London School of Economics, between 1931 and 1950. So the relevance of these two speakers, I think, is obvious to all of you who've come out tonight. There are a further two overflow lecture theatres uh, to which this will be transmitted tonight. And, of course, it will be made into a programme for BBC Radio 4. Can I just, before handing over to Paul, also make a plug for the LSE Public Events series? Uh, it's not just in term time that we offer, I think, the best public events series in the UK. We have events available and advertised on our website that are free and open to all. Uh, tomorrow night, were the tickets available, we have a talk by David Miles from the Bank of England Monetary Committee and a rather different one by Mike Atherton, uh, a previous captain of the England cricket team. Unfortunately, tickets for those have sold out, but we do have, if you have a taste for this, a talk by Rupert Murdoch's biographer, which is also going on tomorrow night. Um, that's not quite perhaps on the scale of tonight's event, so it remains only for me to uh, ask Paul Mason to get tonight's events underway and to welcome all of the speakers. So could you all please give a very warm LSE welcome to Paul Mason. Thank you. I don't need that. Am I on? Good. Hello. While, thank you. Thank you, Stuart. While my, uh, while my guests are just filing on and being mic'd up, I'm just going to introduce myself and the format. We're not on air yet. I'll tell you when we are. Um, and thank you for coming. And thank you to the people who I can't see in the other halls. Sorry you couldn't get into here. Um, okay, so my name's Paul Mason. I'm the economics editor of Newsnight. I'll be the host for tonight's discussion. It's being recorded as live. So that means with almost hopefully no introductions, stops and starts, unless, of course, I get it wrong. Um, and um, it'll go out on the 3rd of August on Radio 4. It'll be repeated on the 5th of August, and it'll be kept on the website in perpetuity so that people in 100 years will be able to say, they thought that about Keynes and Hayek. Um, now, in a moment, my producer will press the record button, and I'll do some of this again. But just to emphasise to everybody, the speakers, any questioners who manage to get in, uh, brevity. 
The speakers are going to all speak for four minutes initially, and I want your question to be really short if you can. One of the reasons for this is it's radio, and an hour is a short time in economics and, and radio. Uh, another is, some of you will know about this, um, impartiality. Some of our listeners get very, very antsy if one person gets three minutes 59 and another gets four minutes. So it's seen as evidence of complete bias. Um, now, when we get to questions, <clears throat> raise your hand. And when you speak, tell me who you are. Tell the listeners who you are and give me a, a, a brief question. A bit of housekeeping. Uh, please switch your mobiles off. Not onto silent, uh, off. The reason is some of us are on radio mics and it, it, they, just, they just interfere. I'm very sorry, that's mobiles, Blackberries, 3G data cards, MI5 surveillance devices. Um, anybody from the news of the world, you know, same, same issue. Um, right. And when we're finished, there's one more thing, certainly for this audience, I'd like the others in the two other overflow rooms, I'm afraid, can do what they want. But this audience, the, after the very end, I need you to stay for about three minutes while I record some links. I, when I say I need you to stay, I mean you are not leaving <laughs> because, because my bosses need you to be here while, while I do the links. Um, are we good, everybody? We need some level before we start. So, Lord Skidelsky, could I just ask you to say something, please? Uh, I'm Keynes's biographer. Thank you. And George? I'm a professor of economics at the University of Georgia. Jamie? Uh, I'm an all-black supporter. <laughs> Duncan? I'm an economist and economics blogger. Okay, was that level enough for everybody? Okay, it's, oh, the, the audience is, thinks they need more, but this was level for radio, so... Uh, okay, are we good? We need to do the checks again. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Uh, just say a, a bit longer, please, Robert. Just, just say a bit more, please. Uh, I'm Professor of Political Economy at the University of Warwick. And keep going, please, until I tell you to stop. What? Anything you want to say? Well, uh, I'm not an all-black supporter, but I am an England supporter. I watched the test match. <laughs> I also don't support the all-blacks. I also watched the test match. I'm still an economist. I'm still an economics blogger. Uh, George, please. What test match? <laughs> keep going, keep going, keep going. A bit, bit more, what? please. <laughs> I'm afraid I, I watched the Tour de France instead. Okay. <laughs> That's as much sports as I've kept up with. And Jamie, Jamie, just give me a bit more level from you, please. Uh, okay, well, the All Blacks are going to win the World Cup in about okay. two months' time. You're prob uh, probably beating England You're probably at some not point wrong along there. You're the way. Good. Uh, okay. That's enough. That's good. Right. Is everybody happy? So, with imagining the applause and the Hayek, uh, Yo Hayek, um, rap thing gently ending will begin good evening I'm Paul Mason and welcome to the old theatre at the London School of Economics where with a packed audience and a panel of distinguished economic thinkers we're going to thrash out an argument so critical to economics that it's inspired not one but two rap songs the question is who was right indeed who is right, Friedrich August von Hayek or John Maynard Keynes? 
Hayek and Keynes were giants of 20th century economics with very different ideas about how depressed economies climb out of recession. The positions, roughly summarised, could be said to be free market economics versus state intervention. Although, as I can hear the teeth of various academics gnashing, it is a lot more complex than that. So tonight, we're going to ask whose theories have a chance of digging the West out of the economic hole we're in. Our debaters, well, I'm going to let them give a one-line introduction to themselves. Robert Skidelsky. I'm Keynes's biographer, Professor of Political Economy at the University of Warwick. George Selgin. I'm a monetary economist at the University of Georgia in the United States. Duncan Weldon. I'm an economist and an economic blogger. And Jamie White. Uh, I'm a former philosopher and now a management consultant. Uh, um, Robert Skidelsky, Lord Skidelsky, um, Keynes's biographer. Keynes and Hayek both had a close association with this place. Um, of course, Hayek taught here from the 30s to, the, to 1950. Do we know whether they ever debated each other? Uh, not, not, on this, not on a platform like this. They wrote and they wrote polemics, they discussed, but they never went head to head in the manner of the, the famous rap video. No. Okay. <laughs> but we're not just here to discuss the past uh, and, and the theoretical arguments. We are going to look back on the fundamental differences in approach and then zip forward to today's crisis. So the format is the first round of two speakers to lay out the basic differences, then some questions from me and some questions from the floor, um, and then a second round on who has the answers for today. There are more questions. And if you want to tweet about this, the hashtag is hash LSEHVK. Now the aim is to keep the high intellectual tone appropriate to the LSE. So we're going to begin as follows, by taking a straw poll. If you count yourself a Keynesian, would you please shout after I have finished, Yo Keynes. Yo Keynes. If you count yourself a follower of Hayek, would you please shout, Yo Hayek. Yo and if you believe if you believe both theories to be trapped in an outmoded marginalist paradigm that should have ended with the 20th century please go yo neither oh, no, no, they say there are no Hayekians in a recession but I think the Hayekians are here in force and that's very appropriate to the LSE Let's see how it goes. First up, to speak for four minutes, Lord Skidelsky, Keynes biographer, crossbench peer, emeritus professor of political economy at Warwick. Uh, today, today's Office of National Bureau Statistics on the British um, uh, growth, second quarter growth, shows that the British economy is flat on its back. Uh, that wouldn't have surprised Keynes. His general theory, which was forged in the Great Depression of 1929-1932, uh, was an attempt to explain why recovery from that slump was so feeble. His proposition was revolutionary at the time. There were no automatic forces for recovery in a capitalist market economy. The economy would go on shrinking till it reached some low point of stability, um, and Keynes called that position underemployment equilibrium. The economy would then stay there until something turned up to revive the animal spirits of businessmen. Well, here we are. 
We're in a classical Keynes and underemployment equilibrium, no growth, and only George Osborne to make us cheerful. Um, Keynes said that in Robert, this... Robert, stop a minute, please. Your mic is popping. Well, Can somebody please sort this out? And then so we'll carry do on. I have to start all I over again? I think you again. do, I'm sorry. Uh, oh, well, I'll make some, a few more jokes then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry, okay. audience. I'll just ha I'm also asked to remind you, because we, we're going out on the 3rd of August, it, to, today is not... It's better if you don't say today, please. People, people try and keep it sort of slightly timeless. <laughs> <laughs> If you want to do, you can say last week. Last week? All right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Are we good? Is the, are the levels good? Could, keep speaking, please, Lord Skidelsky, then we can speak a bit more. Make another joke, please. We're, we're all enjoying it. Well, what about next week? Okay. <laughs> and then I'd be, then I'd be a forecaster, wouldn't just, I? Or, or to the speaker, just be aware of where the mic is so you're not, you're, you're not dislodging it. Right, great. Please, um, we'll, we, we, we can go with a clean start again, can't we, on, on Lord Skidelsky's speech. We're good. I'll just wait till my colleague leaves the stage. So, Lord Skidelsky. Last week's uh, statistics um, just um, uh, um, out produced by the uh, Office of National, um, National, sorry, I'll start again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Murphy, can you just say the latest statistics they're asking for? The latest statistics of the Office of National Statistics show that the British economy is flat on its back. Now, that wouldn't have surprised Keynes. Uh, he wrote the general theory in, the, in 1936 to explain the Great Depression of 1929 to 1932. And he put forward a revolutionary theory. There were no automatic forces in an economy, in market economy, to produce uh, a recovery. The economy would go on shrinking until it reached a low level of stability, and Keynes called this position underemployment equilibrium. The economy would then stay there, stay stuck there, until something happened to revive the animal spirits um, of businessmen. Well, I submit here we are today. We're in a position of underemployment equilibrium. There's no growth and only George Osborne to revive our animal spirits. Now, Keynes said in that, that in that situation, a government needed to run a deficit to whatever extent necessary to offset the decline in private spending. To cut, to cut government spending in a slump was exactly the wrong policy. It wouldn't produce growth, only prolonged stagnation. Keynes's message was, you can't cut yourself out of a slump, you've got to grow yourself out of a slump. Unless there's growth, the government won't be, even be able to meet its own deficit targets. Well, it was Friedrich von Hayek, he always liked the von, who upheld the orthodox uh, uh, theory which Keynes was attacking. Hayek said that the main causes of slumps was excessive credit creation by the banks which led to overinvestment. The boom was the illusion. The slump was the reality. So the slump must be allowed to run its course till the bad investments had been liquidated. The American Secretary of the Treasury, Andrew Mellon, a millionaire by the way, uh, was a great liquidator. Mr. Mr. Mellon had only one formula, wrote his boss, Herbert Hoover. Liquidate labor, liquidate stocks, liquidate the farmer, liquidate real estate. It will purge the rottenness out of the system. 
people will work harder, lead a more moral life. Well, that's roughly what Hayek was advocating in 1929, 1930. He may have changed his mind a bit later, but you know, it's how you do, what you say at the moment when it counts that defines you. And to say, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't mean that really, um, I've changed my mind, is not a very good advertisement for his thinking. Now, Keynes and Hayek never debated their differences at a meeting like today's. But in 1931, Hayek came to Cambridge to explain his theory to an audience of young economists. He impressed on them that the only way to recovery was for everyone to save more. And one of them got up. Professor Hayek, is it your view that if I went out tomorrow and bought a new overcoat, that would increase unemployment? Yes, replied Hayek, turning to a blackboard which had filled with triangles. But it would take a very long mathematical argument to explain why. Contrast this with Keynes. Whenever you save five shillings, you put a man out of work. Now, Hayek's liquidation policies were faithfully followed by the German Chancellor Heinrich Brunig and brought Hitler to power. Hayek later wrote a famous book, The Road to Serfdom, claiming that Hitler's rise had nothing to do with the slump and certainly nothing to do with his advice. In the United States, Roosevelt became president with the American recovery at a standstill and started the New Deal. Worsted in his battle with Keynes, Hayek gave up serious economics, though not serious writing. He and Keynes developed a wary respect and even liking for each other. We get on very well in private life, Keynes said, but what rubbish his theory is. <laughs> Keynes' magnetism made a deep impression on Hayek, but he never stopped believing that Keynes' influence on economics had been tragic. So I've put the argument, who would you prefer to be in charge of our economic life today, Keynes or Hayek? Thank you very much, Lord Skidelsky. <laughs> to respond to that, I'm pleased to introduce Jamie White, former philosophy lecturer at Cambridge, Cambridge University, now head of research at the management consultancy, Oliver Wyman. Four minutes, please. Oh, that's a great start. <laughs> uh. We have booby-trapped this completely. No, shall I just put that back on? Let me do it for you. Uh, this isn't going to work because it's stuck. Oh, it's, that's that's yeah. the problem. I wasn't joking when I said they booby-trapped it for you. Come off. Yeah, yeah, yeah it, it was... How did you stand there? Oh, I see. No, sorry, otherwise we'd have done different things. Well, I'll stand near my chair. <laughs> okay. 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 <coughs> and can you wait until the audience is... For all my speakers, please, can you wait till the, the audience is completely quiet so that we can do our bit with our edit tools later? Thank you. So, Jamie. The power of prayer... I'll give it one second, please. The power of prayer is something people are normally inclined to doubt. But in moments of peril, credulity increases, and the idea of a magical benefactor becomes irresistible. As the saying goes, there are no atheists in trenches. Or to adapt it to economics, there are no Hayekians in recessions. No one wants to suffer the pain of liquidating bad investments, including the bad investment of working for the wrong firm. During a recession, the Keynesian idea that government spending can save us becomes irresistible. Hence, the return of the master, as Lord Skidelsky puts it in the title of his recent book. Since Keynesian policies were last popular and unsuccessful in the 1970s, 
The growing consensus had been that paying people to dig holes in the ground and dropping freshly printed dollar notes from helicopters are not paths to prosperity. But it does not take long for the desperate to forget a thousand unanswered prayers. When the Federal Reserve's price-fixing and interest rates finally led to a financial crisis in 2008, politicians around the world recommitted their lives to Keynes. That's not quite right. Politicians around the world recommitted, sorry, committed the lives of citizens to government officials. The central idea of Keynesianism is that because ordinary people are subject to irrational mood swings, politicians and their appointed bureaucrats, who are cleverer and less animal in their spirits, should force us to make the correct investment decisions. In your irrational fear, <coughs> you may be unwilling to invest in a failed bank or in a company that builds green cars or that makes tunnels allowing turtles to cross the road in Florida. You may be unwilling to invest in a firm that buys cars just for the purpose of smashing them. Well, then, government officials will make you invest in them by borrowing the money, investing in those enterprises, and, on threat of imprisonment, making you service the debt through your taxes. Submit to these superior people, and you'll be saved. You may think the talk of prayer, submission, and salvation is unfair. Keynesian economics is not a religion, but a science. When Christina Romer, President Obama's advisor, designed the stimulus package for him, she did so with mathematical precision. Borrowing hundreds of billions to spend on turtle tunnels and the like, she told us, would have a multiplier effect of 1.57. For every dollar of government spending, GDP would increase by $1.57. Not $1.56, $1.57. This is science. Unfortunately, in the same report, we learned that Ms. Romer's Keynesian model predicted US unemployment peaking at 9% without her stimulus and at 8% with it. Well, we got the stimulus and unemployment peaked at 10%. The Keynesian model didn't just get the magnitude of the effect wrong, it got the direction of the effect wrong, as it did during the Great Depression. The Keynesian policies followed by the Hoover and Roosevelt, uh, sorry, yes, and Roosevelt administrations, which were supposed to shorten the length of the downturn, caused it to be the longest in known history. Excuse me. <coughs> The problem with Keynesian economics is not that it is unscientific. Like any good the scientific theory, it issues testable predictions. The problem is that it is false. Macroeconomics is a difficult and relatively new subject. Even theories that have not yet experienced repeated empirical refutation, such as Keynesianism, should inspire skepticism. To discard voluntary exchange and the normal consequences of business failure in return for the promised benefits of some miraculous macroeconomic theory is intellectually adolescent. Someone who does it is like a teenager who, having read a New Age self-help book, comes to his parents and tells them that all their inherited wisdom is bunkum. Alas, unlike teenagers, the wishful politicians who adopt Keynesian economic policy are not just hormones and big talk. They're hormones and big government. The Keynesian delusion encourages politicians to wield the power of the state in ways that do enormous harm. Okay, just let me just probe that for a minute. Um, Lord Skidelsky, uh, you bring in uh, Bruning's government uh, prior to Hitler. Uh, we could also bring in Helmar Schacht, Hitler's own economic advisor. We could speak of Maxton in the Labour Party. Indeed, Oswald Mosley 
during his time in the Labour Party and after, who kind of all got the same idea that Keynes got, which is demand management, state intervention. Is Keynesianism not simply the, the intellectual byproduct of the fact that capitalism moved in a state direction in the mid-century? I mean, what's special about the work of the man himself? Well, at the time, and, uh, and Jamie White's uh, speech um, uh, typifies this, there was the, the economics profession um, did not believe in state intervention in the working of the economy. Uh, they thought the government should stay clear. And um, the, the economies beca became extremely volatile, as, as, as has been shown just very recently. And these big fluctuations were not something that economic theories explain. And Keynes said that you cannot suffer them. Governments ought to do something about them, because otherwise there would be too much pain. George Selgin, as one of, we're about to hear, one of the defenders of Hayek, Hayek is often characterised as a do-nothing theorist. Particularly, you heard there, uh, Lord Skidalski uh, give you the example of Andrew Mellon, the classic example, liquidate everything. Was Hayek, in this sense, a liquidator? Was he a do-nothing economist? Well, he was a liquidator, but he wasn't a do-nothing economist. Uh, there's a story attributed to Keynes. I think it's a misattribution, actually that uh, he was criticized by someone for having argued something different than he'd argued in the past. And the story is that he said, well, sir, when I come across new facts, I change my mind. What do you do? I think it's a misattribution, but never mind. Lord Skidelsky has, in fact, shown at great uh, length how Keynes changed his mind. He wrote a tract on monetary reform, then he wrote a treatise on money, which had much different ideas, and finally he wrote the general theory in 1936. Now, in 1929, Hayek did not place a great deal of emphasis on his uh, public statements then or in 1930 about the need to avoid a collapse of spending. But he changed his mind. In 1931, he had already begun to change his mind. And by 1932-3, which is when the collapse had really gotten serious, and nobody knew how bad it would get in 29, he was emphatically and very clearly arguing that it's, it's necessary to maintain the level of spending and that this, a sound monetary system ought to do that. In other words, there was hardly any difference between him and Keynes when it come, came to maintaining spending. Now, Hayek wasn't an inflationist because he didn't want to start another boom, but he was neither someone who said, let spending collapse, it doesn't matter, or it's a good thing, not after the actual collapse came. I mean, well, that, that wasn't what he said in 1931 and not, not what he said in the debates in 1932. If he, if he changed his mind, it was a very quiet change and no one was aware of it at the time. Um, and that may be so, and only maybe, maybe historians of, uh, of economic thought have unearthed unearth these changes of mind from some um, dusty archives. But I just remind you that in 1939, so far was he from having changed his mind, that when it was a question of reducing inflation, he advised Mrs. Mrs. Thatcher to do it all in one go. He said, yes, there'll be half the population will be unemployed, but it'll be for a very short time. Yeah, that's how, 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 how far it changed his mind. George Selgin, I see you are delving into your notes. I'm chafing at the bit. I'm chafing at... I actually gave uh, Lord Skidelsky my essay that goes into this in great detail, and oh, soon well, he I, will know... I look forward he to He will reading. know uh, uh, more about this. 
He's taught me something already, which is that Hayek was a fun-loving guy, which I didn't know. Uh, but at any event, uh, in his essay on saving, 1930, but there is a passage in Prices and Production, first edition, 1931, that says, oh yes, if velocity falls, that is, if people hoard, we must have more money to offset that. But it's in the end of the book, because the book is mainly about how we must avoid booms if we are to avoid busts. George, would he, would he have supported quantitative easing? Would he have supported printing money? In principle, money? he would have. He didn't have any faith in central banks' ability to get it right, but he explicit, let me read a passage from Saving, 1933. Unless the banks create additional credits for investment purposes to the same extent that holders of deposits have ceased to use them for current expenditure, the effect is the same as that of hoarding currency and, was all, and with all the undesirable deflationary consequences attaching to that. And one more, very quickly, second edition, Prices in Production, 1935, he apologizes in the preface for his one-sided treatment in the first edition and emphasizes the need that the, it emphasizes that any change in velocity of circulation would have to be compensated by reciprocal change in the amount of money in circulation if money is to remain neutral toward prices. That's about as clear as you can get about stabilizing spending. Duncan Weldon, I just want to bring you in here for a second. Uh, welcome. And uh, <clears throat> just to bring it slightly up to date, the idea behind Keynesianism is that look, during the boom, uh, the government wears a hair shirt, but during the recession, the government intervenes. Um, you were quite close to the centres of power, towards the latter end of um, the Labour government. Um, where was the hair shirt? Well, I mean, this is often something people say about Keynesian. They say, you know, governments want to be very Keynesian during a downturn. Nobody wants to be Keynesian during an upturn. And it's very, very hard for politicians. What I would point out is in... 2001, the last time the UK government was running a surplus, the Conservatives under William Hague attacked them for running a surplus, saying they were hoarding taxpayers' money and should be cutting taxes. It's very, very hard for a government to run a surplus. But the thing is, the public finances were not in an ideal state in 2007, but not in a disastrous state. The actual stock of outstanding debt was lower by international standards. I would also say this. Say, rather than running a small but still a structural deficit in 2007, the UK government had been running a small surplus and nobody's saying they should have been running a huge surplus. What would our deficit be now? Okay, maybe rather than being 10% of GDP, it would be 8% of GDP. It wouldn't make a huge difference. Okay, I'm going to open this to the floor. I'm wondering slightly, I can see where all the Hayekians are camped on this balcony, uh, what you all think of George's definition, uh, and in George's revelation, in fact, of, of Hayek as a monetary stimulus proponent. But, stabilization. Um, okay, st stabilization, but printing money. Um, let me take any old question. Who wants to speak? Sir, up there, it'll take a couple of seconds for my colleagues to get down with the mic. Gentlemen here on this side of that balcony on the second row, if you can go down with the mic, please. Um, somebody else, please give me a, a hand. There's a gentleman right in the middle. It's confusing my colleagues here with the thing. Right in the middle there. Keep your hand up, sir. And there's a gentleman here will be taken after him. So we are about to go to you, sir. I have a question for Lord Skidelsky. Uh, does he think that 
increasing deficits has absolutely no effect on interest rates and monetary policy. And has he considered the fact that austerity might be, have a stimulatory effect in reducing interest rates generally across the economy? Just give me your name before you put the microphone. Sorry, I'm, I'm Adam Memon. I'm a student at UCL. Okay. Robert. Well, uh, there's, there's uh, um, an empirical answer and, and a theoretical answer. Um, uh, uh, there is no evidence um, that I've found in the least bit convincing that um, um, fiscal austerity uh, produces recovery. Um, in fact, I, I don't know what the theory is, except um, that maybe it makes the markets more confident. As for, as for the um, idea that a deficit um, crowds out private spending by raising interest rates, um, I don't think, again, that that is correct. Um, the, point, the point is, of course, that the money uh, is not being used in any other way, and it goes, it, it, it's, it's bound to go into, into government securities, and that's why the British government has been able to um, get its money so cheap. That's why the American government has been able to get its money so cheap, despite the fact that they're running huge deficits. And, and it's, not, uh, it's not the reduction in the deficit that cheapens the cost of government borrowing. So I think both those, on, on both the empirical side and the theoretical side, it's dead wrong. I just want to bring you in, Jamie. Uh, well, actually, I don't want to... The point I would, wanted to clarify from the previous uh, discussion was that it, if you're trying to understand what the position of uh, Hayek is on this, uh, we mustn't mix up the monetary issues and the fiscal issues, which I felt the earlier discussion was doing a little bit. So the Hayek wants to keep monetary stability, neutrality is the word he used, because when you get big swings in the money supply, relative prices are distorted. So you, can't, you, you lose the information that's required for the, the market to work properly. But he was against, clearly he was against the kinds of government interventions in the economy that redirect resources from one place to another. And in fact, his, fiscal, his, his monetary policies were part of avoiding that, right? a part of avoiding the distortions that you get when the money supply starts swinging around. So I just wanted to clarify that point. Yeah. <clears throat> well, you see, it's not distinctive to Hayek, any of this. I mean, there were people who believed, of course, in monetary policy. It was the accepted thing in the United States in the 1920s. Irving Fisher um, uh, was, the, was, was the big theorist of that, that you use monetary policy to stabilize the economy. The fact that Hayek's managed to accept this by 1935. Yeah, okay, a great, great achievement. Everyone knew about velocity and what you had to do when velocity fell. The point is to get the money spent. This was the Keynesian point. Just printing a lot of money um, doesn't actually make sure that anyone spends it. It can be hoarded. And then you can go on printing and printing and printing. Uh, the, 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 the genius of the Keynesian solution was it was a way of getting money spent when people were hoarding it. That's, that's the whole point. George, you know I'm keen to get in on this. Yes. Well, look, what, there, there are many other differences between Hayek and Keynes. Uh, I'm going to talk about liquidity traps, that sort of thing. Just explain uh, what a liquidity deal. trap is. Oh, that's when the, you, you create more money, but it doesn't get spent. Uh, I will address that. But I want to make one thing clear. Hayek was consistent in wanting stability of spending. He worried about not just the, dis the damage done when, a, when spending collapses, right? 
he worried about the damage done when spending grows too quickly. And his theory of the boom was that when spending grows too quickly, you get very serious damage, and the bust is a result of that. Keynes didn't worry about booms. He had nothing to say about booms. Animal spirits are on, then they're off. That's the theory. And this was neglecting the fact that money is, uh, excessive money creation is no more neutral than uh, deficient money creation. Hayek was consistent. He was symmetrical. Keynes was not. He was purely a theorist of the bust. Sir, you then, please. Hello, my name's Gordon Kerr of the Cobden Centre. Uh, Duncan made the point that our national debt was relatively low in 2007, and then, of course, we had the biggest economic stimulus of recent decades, the bailout of the banks. seems to me to have been an economic disaster, saddling the next generation and ourselves with unimaginable and unrepayable levels of debt. Am I wrong? I'd make, I'd make two points on that. The first one was, yes, we took on a lot of debt. Well, three points, in fact. Yes, we took on a lot of debt when we took over, essentially, RBS and Lloyd's TSB. We assumed their liabilities. We also, though, assumed their assets. And I often find it very strange that we always talk about government debt, but don't look at the asset side of the government's balance sheet. The second point I'd make is, if we hadn't done that, if we'd actually allowed RBS and Lloyd's TSB to fail, I think that would have been an absolute catastrophe for the UK economy. Literally, cash machines would have stopped working. This could have been a far more severe economic blow than we had. Finally, I'd say, though, yes, I think the way we've taken over RBS and Lloyd's TSB and then just sat on them and not changed anything else isn't ideal. I think quantitative easing, as it's worked, in principle, I support quantitative easing, but printing £200 billion and not ensuring it got into the real economy was not a good idea. I think Keynes would have been more inventive. I think Keynes might have said, let's print the money and give it to a national investment corporation. Fortunately, we have one of the key figures of the free banking school here to explain what they might have done. George, do you want to just chip in here about... Well, I hate to anticipate my speech, <laughs> but let's not forget Keynes argued it doesn't matter how you put the money into the economy. You can build pyramids with it. You can dig holes in the ground and have people fill them again. You can fill bottles of bank with banknotes and bury them here and there. That kind of argument lends itself to the assumption that it's also okay to give the money to insolvent banks where it sits. That is as much a consequence of the Keynesian uh, emphasis that spending alone, any spending, can get you out of trouble yeah. as it is of yeah. anything else. Uh, wrong. Wrong. Well, pyramid wrong. building, wrong. giving Kane, it to the R RBS, what's the difference? Keynes said you, you, you fill, fill up holes, you, uh, you dig up holes and fill them up again if you can't think of anything better to do. Well, uh, That's apparently the said. government wasn't able to come up with anything better than giving it to the banks. Just one second to my colleagues. I'm losing you in the earpiece. That's why I can't. Can you just speak for a second? Yeah, that's better. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. Okay. Um, my, my other questioner is just along here. Where are you, sir? Um, yes. Yes, Bernard Casey from the University of Warwick. I uh, confess to being a bit of a fan of Andrew Mellon. Um, and I am concerned about um, the redefinition of economic cycles, which a previous chancellor was very fond of. His behavior seems to me almost Greek 
um, to use appropriate terms. But this leading to effectively a growth of credit and effectively to gross misallocations of resources, particularly in the banking and in the housing sector. If there are things which we have to purge, it seems to be that. Jamie, do you want to come in on? Well, yes. <coughs> Gordon, uh, I, uh, d- debt, I don't think, really is the, the real problem with these policies. If they worked, if they were to stimulate the kind of growth that they're supposed to, we could pay the debt off. Right? And future generations are going to be richer than us anyway, so you know, why not make them pay for us? It's, it's redistributive justice. Um, <laughs> now, the real argument against this stuff isn't that kind of thing. It's that you're, it's the mechanism for allocating resources and the moral hazard you're building up. So every time you bail out a bank, when they started doing that back in the 80s in America, uh, you were, you were going to have this, the problem just gets bigger and bigger every time. And ultimately, you know, it's, it's that we are making the economy uh, malstructured. We're putting resources in the wrong places. Let's see some more hands, please, for a minute. I don't want to leave my audience with the complete impression that there are no female economists. Uh, could I leave you with that thought for a second? Um, where's, um, there's a gentleman right on the front row here. He's in the middle, but we'll take him in a minute because that person there in the pink T-shirt as well. So keep your hand up, please. Where were you? There. Uh, my name's Keith Raffin. Wait a second. Uh, you start again while, while I'm quiet. My name is Keith Raffin. Isn't the point about spending, if you look at, uh, at the current financial crisis, the Chinese, with their massive stimulus, actually made sure that that money, partly perhaps because of the political nature of the regime, was effectively spent in investment terms, in infrastructure, and therefore had a dramatic effect in China, whereas the American stimulus, to the contrary, perhaps because it was inhibited by democratic, uh, the democratic processes, was not so effective. I agree. I think I think if you look at the if you look at the faster growing economies, they all had very big stimulus packages. And if you look at the slower growing economies uh, or the slowest growing economies, they've uh, had austerity policies for quite some time. But just one point, which I think was is someone didn't get asked about the debt. You know, if you borrow if you borrow the money from your own citizens, there's no debt burden for future generations because you're transferring money from the from the taxpayer to the bondholder for the bondholder to the taxpayer. The people who are borrowing are getting back the debt, and therefore there's no net future debt burden. That, of course, is not very well understood, and it only applies if you borrow the money from your own uh, subjects or your own residents. But it is important, because everyone says, look at these huge burdens we're piling up for future generations. Not true, really. Before we go on, could I just get the last question, please, to give me your name again, and if you're from somewhere, could you say where it is? Uh, my name is Keith Raffin. Good. Okay. That's it. That's my answer. Now, looking at the audience, as you were speaking there, uh, Lord Skidelsky, I am struck by the fact that there almost seems to be a kind of natural Hayekianism. There's a naturalness to free market economics for this generation, um, in a way, much in the way that, that state interventionism was the natural ideology of the 1930s. Don't you ever despair that the current generation just doesn't get it. They'll do the Keynesian thing, but they don't believe the theory. Well, I don't know that they really believe the Hayekian theory. You know, Hayekians aren't exactly thick on the ground. 
Um, and they may be they may be here, um, and uh, and uh, and you know I, I I applaud their their eagerness to come and hear the Keynesian case, uh, but but on the whole they have no influence on policy, and most people don't um, don't actually think that they've got anything to contribute. I mean it's one thing saying all right you shouldn't have a boom, and I accept all that such a boom you have to regulate the banking systems, but once you're there once you're in this hole. What does Hayek have to offer? What does he have to offer us? Jamie White. Uh, I find the idea that the current generation are natural Hayekians extraordinary claim. Uh, after all, these are people who uh, basically live on the tit of the state. Uh, they're all educated in state schools. They're all treated in state hospitals. I've seen uh, focus groups that were, I think, on Newsnight before the last election, and they were asked about politics, the, the gathered people, and all of them just said, what's the government going to do for me? That's what everybody asked. The population of Britain is not Hayekian. Right. <laughs> Madam. Give us your name and where you're from, please. Um, okay, this is probably going to be the oddest moment. My name is lovely de Guzman. It really is lovely. Um, <laughs> um, my question is, what would Hayek and Keynes have done um, with the euro crisis, and specifically, specifically towards George, would he would Hayek have done a sort of two-tier euro, or more of a privatised euro? As if I didn't have enough work on my hands. <laughs> <laughs> well, Hayek was no fan of the euro. He, uh, uh, if anything, he uh, was a fan of the idea of a hard euro or hard ECU that would add to the menu of choices among Europeans. By, by preserving the existing currencies and introducing one more option, just in case. And I think Hayek's being vindicated. I think that right now a lot of people would be better off if there'd still been a German mark and they could switch to it. I'd say to start with, this is, um, you know, if we look at what happened in Southern Europe in the 10 years before the crash, when the ECB did set interest rates very low, there is your classic Hayekian boom. You know, well done to Hayek, he spots that. But now we're in the crash, Again, is it Keynes or is it Hayek? What we've seen is an extreme adoption of austerity in, in coming into Portugal, now coming into Spain, certainly in Greece, in Ireland. And what's happened? We've had emergency budgets cutting spending. The economy shrunk further. The deficits have got bigger. And what's been the answer? We'll try again. Well, George. Well, the answer is, first of all, that what Hayek has to offer is advice right now. Don't start another one. In 2001... Following the, the dot-com boom, let's not forget that, right? The Federal Reserve decided it was going to help the economy recover by holding down interest rates. And the Hayekians consistently warned of the dangers of that. They've been warning about the dangers of this since the 20s. And it keeps happening and happening again. Those who say Hayek has nothing to offer are very short-sighted. They want you to not listen to him now so that they can say, well, he has nothing to offer next time we have a crash. This is not good advice. It's as if uh, uh, you were warned by someone not to go on a drinking binge, and then you did it anyway, and then you got sick, and then this person said, well, you know, you knew this was coming. He said, don't give me that. Give yeah. me some real advice I can use. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So you, so you warn someone not to go on a drinking binge. Um, he um, doesn't take your advice. 
he um, falls into the gutter. Um, he sh- starts shivering, and you let him, you let him stay there. Not yeah, so. yeah, yeah, because Not that's so. what you do. The that's advice what the is to do. maintain the flow of spending, to offset declines in velocity with corresponding advances in the quantity of money. That is the Those advice. Those are words. Those are words. Well, sir, They're that's all the economists words. have. Well, they can't well, exactly. They, uh, let me let me call time what for a second. What about actions? What about I actions? I couldn't walk into the Bank of England or the Fed and take over. He let me call time for a second on this. Let me call time for a second on this and come to the, our gentleman right at the back, please. My name is Shiv Malik. I'm the co-author of Jilted Generation. Uh, but I'm actually not going to ask a question on generations. One instead, uh, that economics is essentially still a moral science. And underlying these two great uh, economists are, are the values of freedom for Hayek, let's say, and security for Keynes. Could you speak to whether that is, you would say that's correct, and then ultimately whether a sort of a new generation today has a, a effectively sort of, you know, wants both. Uh, and, and therefore needs a new kind of economy. Jimmy uh, White. Well, I think that's an important point, but I think that, or question, I think the Hayekian position doesn't need to be based on a love of liberty, though most Hayekians do love liberty. In fact, you, you, there are good utilitarian arguments for it. So if you have a uh, rule of law based system, a kind of market system, the idea is that over the long run it's utility maximizing. People are better off over the long run. Also, wonderfully, they're free. Uh, The two things go together. There's not a conflict. Under the state interventionist system, you get a perpetual erosion of liberty and a sclerosis in the economy, and people are both less free and worse off. Duncan. I would agree with a lot of that. I'd say most of the great macroeconomists are really political economists. They're not just talking about how the economy functions. They're looking at how it interrelates with society, with governments. I mean, how else can you talk about something like real wages without there being political considerations? And I think these biases come forward. We've seen in the last few weeks, as the economy has slowed, all of the various right-wing economic think tanks outlining their growth strategy. And their growth strategy is invariably cut or abolish the minimum wage, cut corporation tax, and a bit of deregulation. That's not their growth strategy. That's what they ask for every single week. (laughs) Robert Skidelsky. And and, and I don't think there's a real um, conflict between freedom and security. One of the things Keynes said, and I think you look back to the 30s and you realize um, how important it was, and I think you can see some of it today, that without security, freedom is endangered. If, in fact, you inflict too much pain on economies, cause too much unemployment to develop, don't do things about it, you start getting a lot of social discontent. And I think he thought, in, he had this very interesting exchange with Hayek in 1944, a very friendly exchange, and he said, look, we both want to protect freedom, we just disagree about how we should do it, because I think the effect of your policies will be to endanger freedom, and I think the effect of my policies will be to support freedom. And in fact, the liberal capitalist economy revived after the Second World War under, really, a Keynesian umbrella. We'll move on now. There'll be another set of questions, so keep thinking about your questions and keep indicating to me when I give you this, the signal. I will come back to as many people as I can, but for now we'll move on. I'm Paul Mason, and you're listening to Hayek versus Keynes. I'm Paul Mason, and you're listening to the Hayek versus Keynes debate at the London School of Economics on BBC Radio 4. Now, 
In 2008, the global financial system stood on the brink of collapse. Alan Greenspan, the former Federal Reserve boss, said he'd found a flaw in free market theory. A flurry of Keynesian intervention followed. Fiscal stimulus, monetary stimulus, competitive devaluation in some places, capital controls. And it worked in China, but not in the West. Instead of bankrupting the banks, we decided to bankrupt states. So the euro is in crisis. America stands on the brink of a technical default. Growth in the United Kingdom is flatlining. Who can save us, Hayek or Keynes? Now, to answer this, I'm delighted to call on George Selgin, Professor of Economics at the Terry School of Business, University of Georgia. Thank you very much. I'm going to stand very slowly so that my microphone stays attached to me. Right, so the difference between... I'm asked to tell you what Hayek's advice is now. I take it to mean what he would have advised based on the culmination of his theoretical work in the early 1930s, not based on what he may have said in 1929 or 30 uh, in a letter to the editor or what have you. And the real difference between Hayek and Keynes is not about whether sta spending should be stabilized. Stabilized. The real difference is that Hayek saw a connection between depressions and booms that Keynes refused to acknowledge. For Hayek, booms involve unsustainable investment encouraged by easy monetary policies that are bound, that is bound ultimately to lead to a bust. Maybe a serious one, maybe not so serious. So real recovery isn't just a matter of keeping spending from collapsing. One must see to it that resources are redirected, capital and labor both, to the creation of new sustainable activities, and that requires action in the sense that it requires not getting in the way of that reallocation. Thanks in part to easy money, the world economy is now experiencing a very bad malinvestment hangover after a wild subprime lending party. The Hayekins warned against the party and now they're being blamed for stating that there's no painless way to avoid the hangover. Spending alone won't cure it because the economy isn't just suffering from a lack of spending. It's suffering from having made huge unsustainable investments in the housing and financial services industry. When the bust came, not the free market, easy money, pardon me, when the bust came, a lot of construction workers who had been building houses during the, bust lost, during the boom lost their jobs. No one's happy about this, of course. But we have to accept that those people cannot go back to jobs building houses at a time when we're bulldozing the houses we already built. The story in the financial industry looks better, but is actually a lot worse. It looks better in the sense that many bankers are still doing just fine. I can tell from all the Aston Martins and Maseratis around my hotel in Kensington. Uh, but the fact is, the financial industry hasn't retrenched in the way the construction industry has. It's more bloated than ever, in fact, to judge from the actual statistics, yet it's not adding value to the world economy, nor is it doing its part to help other businesses to do so. The straightforward recipe for a revival of healthy investment following the crisis, the 2008 crisis, was to liquidate. Liquidate Bear Stearns. Liquidate Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Liquidate, in short, the whole subprime bubble-blowing apparatus that was nurtured by easy monetary policy. And yes, that would have meant letting insolvent banks that lent or invested unwisely go bust. It would have been better 
to use new money to pay off depositors at those banks than to keep the irresponsible bankers in business. Instead, our governments chose to keep bad banks going, and that is why quantitative easing has proven a failure. It's, it isn't just that spending has, hasn't recovered. In fact, consumer spending has pretty much gotten back to its pre-crisis level. Take my word for it. This is accurate. Anyway. Uh, <coughs> you're holding up a graph there. Yes, George, it's a graph that shows that spending back well to its pre-crash level. The problem is a lack of productive investment. Quantitative easing failed because almost all the new money the Fed created, starting with the money it used to buy vast amounts of subprime securities at the beginning of the crisis, has gone to shore up the balance sheets of irresponsible bankers. Now those banks sit on piles of idle cash while other businesses starve or can't get started for want of credit. And this, the other fact in that, uh, that's encouraging this is the absurd Fed policy of paying banks not to lend. Now, Keynesians call this situation a liquidity trap and claim that the answer is more government spending. But this particular liquidity trap is one Keynesian ideas helped set because Keynesians support indiscriminate spending. They say it doesn't matter where the money goes. You can build pyramids, etc. But to defend indiscriminate spending is to defend indiscriminate bailouts. The government did worse than build pyramids. It used new money to prop up solvent banks, which are now so many giant liquidity sponges. Yet there are people with small businesses who can't borrow. To return to my hangover analogy, the economy is like a drunk throwing up the morning after the night before. It's disgorging itself, or trying to disgorge itself, of bad investments it was tempted to undertake only because of excessively bad money or largely because of it. Easy money, pardon me. Giving it still more money won't prevent the inevitable suffering. It might mask or delay it somewhat, but only at the cost of more suffering later. This isn't the sort of advice governments welcome. They want a painless, easy way like the, Keynesian, the one Keynesians offer. But as Hayekians warned again and again, there's no painless recovery from an unsustainable boom. The only way to have uh, no pain is to avoid the boom itself. To respond to that, Duncan Weldon, to respond to that, Duncan Weldon, an advisor to an international trade union federation. Back in 2009, Paul Krugman wrote that we were living through a dark age of economics. By that he meant what the dark ages were, were a time when centuries of previously gathered human knowledge were suddenly forgotten. And I think that's quite fair to characterise much of the economic debate, both in the current policymaking circles and tonight. Stuff that uh, lots of very, very simple questions that I thought had been settled 70 or 80 years ago during the Great Depression haven't been settled. They're rearing their heads again today. What Keynes was really fighting against in the mid-1930s and the early 1930s was what was then termed the Treasury view. This idea held particularly by the British Treasury but by um, fiscal authorities across the world that government spending couldn't help in a recession. It would simply crowd out private spending for no net effect or even to make the situation worse. Nowadays, we don't call this theory the Treasury view. We call it expansionary fiscal contraction. The idea is, as government spending cuts back, growth will actually pick up as private sector investment and exports step up to the plate. Larry Summers, the former US Treasury Secretary, 
has described the idea of expansionary fiscal contraction as oxymoronic. I think he was being kinder. I wouldn't have added the oxy. <laughs> Britain, to a large extent, has voluntarily embarked on the toughest course of government spending cuts for decades. I say voluntary because this was a choice. Yes, Britain was running a very large deficit, but the markets were still lending to Britain at 3.5%, near historic lows for 10-year government bonds. The existing stock of British government debt was low by international standards, and British government debt has the longest maturity in the developed world. Our average debt is 14 years away from being paid off. Yes, the deficit has to be brought down, but the markets were not screaming out for it to be eliminated at such a rapid pace. One year ago, the UK government policy turned more Hayekian. And the early indications are, it's not working. In the last nine months, the economy hit by collapsing confidence, a VAT rise, and the beginnings, just the beginnings of austerity, has grown by 0.2%. In the nine months before that, when we still had in place a broadly Keynesian stimulatory policy, the economy grew by 2.1%. 2.1% versus 0.2. That's quite a difference. The government are now telling us that their rapid deficit reduction has returned stability to the economy. That's actually pretty fair, if you think about it. Nine months of stagnation is pretty stable. In late 2008, the centre of the world's financial system took a near-fatal shock. Demand evaporated and world trade shrunk at a quicker pace than at the onset of the Great Depression. Governments around the world responded with a Keynesian stimulus, stimulus package. Two and a half years later, collapse has been avoided. The outlook is still far from good, but outright collapse was avoided. Where are we now then? The recovery in Britain, which has led the way in terms of austerity amongst the major economies, is anemic. The US is moving via what looks to be a high-stakes game of budgetary chicken towards austerity of its own. Austerity has already been pushed to its limits in the southern bit of the Eurozone and is also there in the north. We have near simultaneous global cuts in government spending, the most since 1981, according to the IMF. As Ken said, you will never balance the budget through measures which reduce the national income. Think about where we are in Britain at the moment. The consumer is over-indebted and not spending. Our export prospects look pretty bleak. Remember our largest trading partner is the Eurozone, which has its own problems at the moment, and businesses are not investing. If government spending starts to be cut back, where is the demand going to come from? I'd end by saying, Keynes once wrote that one day he hoped economists would be regarded like dentists. That is to say, humble and competent people whom you went to see when you had a problem requiring help. So I ask you this, if you had a case of toothache, which of these dentist economists would you rather go and see? Dr. Keynes, who would try and find you a solution, or Dr. Hayek, who would say, well, you shouldn't have got toothache in the first place. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Eventually, the rotten teeth will fall out all by themselves. No. Duncan introduced a phrase there, expansionary fiscal contraction, that I just want to unpick for our listeners. It means, if I get it right, that people think the economy will grow again if you shrink the state. 
I wasn't so aware that this was central to Hayek's theories. It may be something that the two gentlemen uh, on the Hayekian side agree with, but what would Hayek say about that? that and it is something of the, of the new, uh, it's the new orthodoxy of, of many governments who are pursuing orthodoxy, clear the state out of the way, um, reduce the, 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 the risk-free rate of government borrowing, and you get a recovery. What, what do you think, George Selgin? Well, Hayek was not in favor of fiscal expansion, that's for sure. His argument uh, was an argument for a monetary policy that um, stabilized spending both to avoid booms and consequent misallocation and to address busts. At least that's the view he came around to fairly quickly. Now, uh, uh, as for fiscal policy, probably his ideas were, were indeed quite orthodox, that it took too long, that it was wasteful, the market was generally better at allocating spending than the government would be. But Hayek didn't live in a world like today where the government has done things to prop up zombie banks that sit on all the cash they can get hold of. So obviously he didn't have anything to say about the particular problem that's keeping quantitative easing from working now. But uh, he in principle favored monetary stabilization, not fiscal expansion. Jamie White, I just want to ask you the question on the back of that. Um, okay. We don't like the idea that the governments around the world saved the banks. Uh, we think that it may have contributed to um, all the problems we're now seeing of the, the inability of money printing to, to, to increase or stabilise, you would like, demand. What would you do, though? If you started, we've handed you the keys to the Treasury today in the United Kingdom, what would you do? To the Treasury? Well, to any government department you, you care to choose except the... <laughs> Culture, media, and sport, which I can't see the relevance of. I'd, I'd be at the, the Bank of England. He'd lock the door. I'd be at the airport in 15 minutes with my suitcase filled. Um, I think it's the problem. I would cut spending uh, more than already. More than well, is planned already. I'm not already. sure. It's strictly, I mean, the cuts are minute. Uh, so it, it's simply I've, uh, there's a mischaracterisation of what's going on in Britain at the moment. Uh, it's quite Keynesian, in fact, because once you've got the welfare state in place, you get an automatic expansion of government spending during a downturn. And we are also digging holes in the ground in Afghanistan and Libya. Uh, we have bailed out the banks. It's all pretty Keynesian, actually. It's just not as much as Keynesians would like. And what the Keynesians always argue is that uh, if it's not working, it's only because they haven't done enough. Uh, and in fact, what little they have done has saved us from catastrophe. If they hadn't done it all, things would have been so much worse. And yet they have, the, the, how they prove this, the, what the argument is, they use their own models. They use their own models that say, uh, and then their, their own predictions don't work, and they come out wrong, as I said in my talk, and then they say, well, that's because things must have been even worse than we had known. Uh, so they readjust their assessment of the, the reality on which they're working. In that case, I was actually, I'm too charitable to say it's scientific. It could be a science. But the way Keynesians actually proceed means that it's not scientific at all. Lord Skidelsky, can I just come to you and say, well, well what, what is the Keynesian answer to now? Bearing in mind we had the bank bailout, a lot of people think it created moral hazard. We have money printing on both sides of the Atlantic uh, that is doing a bit. On the, in the American case, huge stimulus, not particularly stimulating the economy. What more would a true Keynesian do? Well, uh, I think a true Keynesian would um, uh, look for an investment strategy 
which was could be separated from the budget. Austerity is demanded by the markets, and I think governments are committed to that kind of fiscal austerity, reducing their deficits. But on the other hand, you have to get investment going. And I would set up, and I think Keynes supported something like this in 1933, I would set up a national investment bank. And I would, uh, we already have an institution that could be enlarged to fill that purpose, which is the Green Bank, which has got a capital of three billion, uh, but it's not allowed to borrow, and it hasn't started. I would, uh, I would uh, make it a much bigger bank, and I would allow it to borrow. Borrow frozen savings that now have no use and aren't being lent to businesses. And that would sort of get, that would somehow offset some of the depressive effects of, of the austerity program. Could I, well, just one finish. I mean, the Hayekians are, are sort of, they live in a dream world of their own. Tiny, tiny cuts. 32 billion a year for five years out of the economy. Tiny cuts. Reallocation of resources. These are just phrases. What does it mean in terms of human lives? It, it's sort of so abstract and, and, and unreal. George Selgin. That's why no one listens to them, by George the way. George Selgin. Well, let's see, we had some government-sponsored uh, lending institutions in the United States. Uh, they had charge of a lot of money during the, the first decade of the 2000s, and guess where they put it all? Uh, in the mortgage and subprime mortgage market. I don't think governments can be trusted to do better than the market. They can only be kept from doing bad things. As for fiscal expansion, look. It didn't work. It had very little. In fact, it had nothing to do with recovery from the Great Depression in the 30s. And I take this on the best possible authority, unassailable. I hope Lord Skidelsky will agree that Christina Romer knows about these things. And she showed that the recovery, such as it was, despite Roosevelt's New Deal that took place after 33, was all because of monetary increases based on gold inflows and, to some small extent, on devaluation, small relative to the gold inflows from a jittery Europe. That's the recovery. There's been no episode of a depression that was cured by fiscal expansion. And the U.S., as has been conceded, had no austerity program. It might have one soon. We've spent all kinds of money, huge bundles of money, and we have had less recovery than most other countries and the most postponed uh, unemployment. I'm now going to take another quick fire round of questions from the audience. Sir, at the top there, please. Hello, um, my name is Rory Meakin. Um, I'm from the Taxpayers Alliance. Uh, while recent growth figures um, have been rather flat, uh, the latest OBR figures uh, show George Osborne's government has been ejaculating 4.9% more stimulus into the economy this June than June last year. Is it time for cuts? Don't, who wants to answer? Duncan. Um, it's, always, it's always nice to get a question from the Taxpayers Alliance. So some of my favourite um, um, prayers on my blog comes from the Taxpayers Alliance. I'm intellectually dishonest, a hack, and know very little about economics. So bear with me if I stumble a bit here. Um, <laughs> it's interesting. It's very interesting. In the last quarter, government borrowing isn't coming down. Despite a VAT rise, Despite £6 billion of spending cuts last year and more spending cuts starting now, borrowing is not coming down. This is the Keynes quote I mentioned before. 
You cannot reduce the government deficit through measures which reduce the national income. The Chancellor is chasing his own tail. Every time he's cutting, he's driving down growth. That puts more people out of work, takes down the tax take. It's a self-defeating strategy, as Ireland and Greece have discovered over the last three years. Absolutely right. Well, yeah. if, if it were true... Jamie White. Your argument simply assumes that government spending does increase growth, and the record doesn't show that to be true. I mean, the, the problem of the, the Keynesians' position has been tried many times, and it doesn't work. That's why this argument is so strange. The market mechanism is no, it's understood how free exchange leads to the adequate, the correct allocation of resources. And on the, you're willing to throw that away on the basis of a fantasy that government spending works when it's been shown repeatedly that it does not. Woman at the top there, please. Hi, um, my name's Polly. I'm a student at the LSE and I'm currently working at the Institute for Economic Affairs. Um, I know that the terms uh, debt and um, the other term that she's deficit are sometimes used interchangeably and I in fact learnt the other day that deficit refers to the, to the amount at which the debt is growing. Um, so by cutting the deficit, they aren't actually planning to cut the debt, they're just planning to cut the, fact which is the rate which it is growing. Um, and now I wonder how many members of the public are actually aware of the difference um, in these terms and is either side um, worried that, in fact, the deficit is still increasing and that we're not going to even cut the deficit enough? Well, I'm, I'm very worried that the deficit is increasing. But um, I would just point out, as, as my colleagues just said, the deficit is increasing because the national economy isn't growing. And, um, when, you know, and, 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 and that's the source of revenues. You could, you could, you could, um, you could get the deficit down, uh, and certainly cutting some spending, but also get the deficit down by getting some growth going. And then, as the deficit falls, the national debt stops rising. And, and eventually, um, I mean, it'll start falling. But, you know, uh, I'm worried. Of course we're worried. The question is, how do you do it? And our contention is that causing the economy to flatline is exactly the wrong way of reducing the deficit. George Selgin, before I bring you in, I notice yet again you've got another graph for us. If you'd like to describe it. I'm going to describe it. It's a graph showing what's happened to total spending in the economy since 2002. This is the US, pardon me for being US-centric. And what's happened to investment. The blue line is investment. It dips down dramatically from a very high level at the peak of the boom. It completely collapses. In 2009, after the collapse, there was so little investment that it wasn't nearly enough to maintain the stock of productive capital in the US economy. Spending dipped, but not nearly as much. Here's the point of the chart. Spending has recovered much of what it lost. Investment has it. Now, here's the thing. Government spending is not investment. It certainly isn't investment of the sort that's needed to maintain the existing stock of plant and equipment, to keep productive enterprise going, to make the economy grow. It's a fallacy that spending on government programs is the same as building factories and new businesses and so on. It's absolutely not the same thing. The kind of growth that gets you out of a deficit, and we do all agree that growth is the thing that matters most, is not the what government spending and fiscal expansion brings. Yeah, that's wrong. That's wrong. I mean, just a very, very brief point. 
Government spending keeps up demand in the economy. People invest when they see orders coming through. Insofar as government spending keeps up demand, it encourages investment. It doesn't, government doesn't have to invest things in, in its, uh, invest itself. Robert, that's, that's maybe true in theory. No, it's true but, in practice. But what about America? Ameri you know, on my travels through America, I, I don't see much of the fiscal stimulus filtering through into either investment or spending. It's not very efficient as a country Look, to spend the money. The counterfactual is what would have happened without it? Um, well, these guys think it could have, well, it could have the, recovered. These guys think that um, Roosevelt caused the American slump to be a lot deeper than it would have been. Yes, I if will emphatically defend it in detail. Lord Skidelsky will give me two minutes to do so. If Wait a good Hayekian remedies had been adopted, America would have absolutely bounced back after a little bit uh, from, from the greatest slump in world history. Right. If you, if you believe that, you are really living in a cuckoo cloud world. It, we really are. And, and I mean, um, it's not, it's not the it's just not true. Uh, you, 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 you got whatever growth you had in the United States economy um, through Roosevelt New Deal policies. And just one last point, the real recovery from the American Depression was brought about by massive state spending. It was called the Second World War, actually. True. One minute to just come back on that. Robert Higgs is an excellent economic historian. He's written a wonderful essay called Did World War II End the Depression? The wartime statistics are seriously warped. Correcting them for the actual, to try to get a true gauge of the actual recovery of the private economy shows there was no genuine recovery in World War II. None until the war ended, and not because we maintained Keynesian policies, but because Truman rolled back, he essentially repealed the New Deal. The New Deal itself did a lot of harm, particularly the National Recovery Association, which essentially prevented any adjustment in prices by setting price and wage controls throughout the whole U.S. economy designed to keep prices up. When the NRA kicked in, the real wage rates actually bounced up because of the required wages at a time when 25% of the labor force was begging for jobs. How's that for price controls? Woman in the middle there, please. Um, Linda Whetstone. Um, although the inflation figures don't reflect it, anyone who has to shop will know that prices are running faster than any of us can ever remember. I don't hear this being attributed to the vast amount of money being printed around the world by a number of governments, but I can't see that this won't be the eventual result. I think, I think if we look at the, um, the British numbers on inflation, yes, um, um, CPI inflation and RPI inflation, the two usual measures, are both running very high and they're running well in excess of wages. Real wages in Britain have been falling for 18 consecutive months. This is a problem. But if you strip out the effects of the VAT rise, um, that comes down a bit. More than that, though, if we try and break it down, as the Bank of England has done, between domestically generated inflation and internationally generated inflation, domestic inflation in the UK is running at a much lower rate. What we've got is we've got rising oil prices other rising commodity prices, rising food prices on an international scale, coupled with the VAT rise, hence the high inflation. And just for the, and just for the uninitiated, CPI inflation is the international measure the government uses. RPI is what it feels like. Um, <laughs> woman up there. Woman up there, please. Hello. Hi. Um, 
This, uh, going back a couple of steps, you were saying that this is very uh, American-centric uh, in its discussion. Uh, I'm very interested, the last recession we had, I went to work in Germany, and I went to work, and I was working in construction industry in Berlin, where there was huge state investment to rebuild not only Berlin, but the whole of the Western economy after 1990. Um, Germany seems to be doing very well today, thank you very much and also investing hugely in uh, green economy. They have the KFW Bank, which is something similar to what was being discussed by uh, Lord Skidgelsky. Um, they are in the process of potentially, uh, yeah, speeding up, uh, bailing out Europe. Uh, why does nobody look at the successes in Europe and uh, countries like that? And just give us your name, please, in any Sorry. institution you want to be from. <laughs> yeah, my name is Henrietta Lynch, and I'm from UCL. Okay. Well, I had always taken it that the, the Keynesians t treat Germany as a, not a very Keynesian country. If I recall in an interview with you, Lord Skidelsky, you said that the, the Europeans, like Germany, were not following the Keynesian uh, program and would come to rue the day. So I, I wouldn't take Germany not, as a strong now. argument. Not now. I mean, they're, they're apostles of austerity, but, but the question was quite right. Um, the Germans have uh, used state institutions, the KFW is one of them, for investment in infrastructure and green technology. And more generally, the Northern Europeans are not Hayekians. They've got very, very, uh, by, by, by Hayekian standards and, 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 and our standards, high rates of taxation. They have very large state sectors. They work less than um, the Americans, who are workaholics, and they have very high uh, standards of living. And no one now gives any, 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 pays any attention to the European model. We haven't hard, we've hardly mentioned it here. Um, uh, but it's a very successful model, and um, it's not a Hayekian model. George Selgin. Yes, I'd like to come back to inflation. And uh, for once, I'd like to say something nice about uh, Keynes. And uh, what I'd like to say is, that just, as, just as it isn't true that, that Hayek didn't care if spending collapsed, it's not the case that Keynes was an apologist for inflation. He was consistently opposed to inflation from his earliest work to his last. When, uh, indeed, inflationary pressures became uh, a problem in, with the outbreak of World War II, Keynes immediately proceeded to argue for restraint in money creation and other measures to make sure inflation did not become serious. In light of his consistent opposition to inflation, I think we have to question whether Keynes would be happy with monetary policies that his, and other measures that his so-called followers advocate that would almost certainly create inflation, that they think, inflation that they now consider to be useful and desirable for helping an economy get out of a bust. Lady here, please. Sybil Gillespie, sixth form student. Uh, this is for George Selgin, but others as well. Um, you spoke of supporting the bad banks, as you call them, but considering the effect of the collapse of layman's on the global financial system and the economy, what would you do if not prop up the banks which are failing, which you say are sitting on the cash, and was there any alternative which would still allow for the availability of credit to businesses and consumers, and if this happened again in the future, what would you have done? Well, I, I think it's a myth that it was the collapse of, uh, of uh, layman's that caused what had been a, a financial crisis only to become 
a general economic crisis. There have been quite a few studies looking into the timing of the collapse of spending and particularly of the seizing up, as they called it, of the interbank or wholesale lending markets. And it appears that that's coincided not with the uh, failure of Lehman Brothers, but with the Fed's implementation of its policy, its ridiculous policy, I think we'll all agree, of paying banks to not lend money. It was on the day that that policy took effect that the wholesale lending market in the United States seized up. It wasn't worth banks' effort to, to lend to other banks liquidity when they could get interest just by holding on to it themselves. Duncan Weldon, let me just throw that back at you because it's a persistent thing this audience is raising and the public. Okay, we may have had to bail out some of the banks, but as a result, there's zombie capital, basically, in the banks, in many businesses, among many families. We're just not prepared to take that final moment of crisis resolution and write stuff off. What do the Keynesians say about that? I think it's actually a lot of interest in Keynesian thought over the last, you know, since Keynes' death, economists such as Minsky, who people ignored and now really coming back to since the crash, or recently people like Richard Koo, who've pointed out you get these huge build-ups of debt in economies. And I'm not talking about public sector debt, I'm talking about debt at the corporate level, debt at the household level, debt in the financial system. You know, Richard Koo calls what we're going through now the same as what he called the Japanese problems of the 1990s, a, a balance sheet recession. All of these corporations, households, are just trying to pay down debt. And things stop working when people are just trying to pay down debt. If your entire private sector is trying to deleverage, trying to pay down debt, government has to spend. Otherwise, no one does. And we get in a negative feedback cycle of everything going down. But there are healthy banks. There are healthy banks, and those banks are the banks that ought to be getting money and would be getting it if the other banks were wound up. People would take the money away from Citibank and all these other zombies and they would put it in banks that would put it to, to work in the economy. I will just point out that Citibank itself, Citigroup, its parent company, may disagree that it itself is a zombie. Uh, I'll take my final... I'll take my final question. Up there, please. Hi. Uh, my name's Tom Boardman. I'm not really from anywhere. Um, <laughs> but uh, just a quick question to the Hayekians in the room. Uh, just wondering what Hayek would have made of the dot-com bubble, whether he could have anticipated it. And I think that it, the, the question is relevant because the dot-com and the Asian boom-bust cycle are cited by critics of free market economics as uh, not, we didn't just have one irrational uh, period of exuberance, but we had kind of three came along at once, and this is just the latest one. What does free market economics do to stop the recurrence of these things? It eliminates moral hazard. Uh, that's the main reason. That, that's what it can mainly do. So you have a system of uh, bailouts of subsidized debt effectively in the economy, and this is, uh, encourages bubbles. I'm not saying that bubbles would never occur without such distortions, but these distortions in the market economy positively encourage them. And uh, Hayekians are not a utopian theory. It doesn't say the world will be perfect if market forces are used, but there is no better system. Robert Skidelsky, before we wind up, if... John Maynard Keynes could be reincarnated for us in this room for 10 seconds only. What would he be saying to President Obama? He would be saying, set up a national infrastructure bank to get investment going in the United States. 
That's what he'd be saying now. And I'm sticking, I'd stuck to my 10 seconds, unlike my opponent. <laughs> <laughs> I might reduce you, George, to eight on that basis, but uh, George Selgin, if Friedrich August Hayek could be reincarnated right in front of us, what advice would he give to David Cameron? His advice would be that if you keep relying on central banks to get uh, monetary conditions right, you're going to keep having boom-bust cycles, and you're going to have to think about ways to ultimately dispense with central banks if you want to avoid these kinds of crises. Or, in other words, uh, Mervyn King should maybe stay at the cricket. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we're nearing the end of the program. Kane's famous last words were, I think, I should have drunk more champagne. <laughs> I can't offer you any, but the bars around the LSE will surely reverberate for the rest of the evening with continued argument and disagreement. For now, we will close by taking a, mo uh, for now, we'll close by taking a vote in the manner we started. In answer to which of these two great economists was right and which has answers for today, beginning with Keynes, give me your response. Well, he who shouts loudest shouts last, I think, from there. I think the Hayekians slightly have it. It just remains for me to say thank you to Lord Skidelsky, George Selgin, Jamie White and Duncan Weldon. From me, Paul Mason at the London School of Economics, thank you and good night. Please stay here. Please leave the recriminations until we get off the platform. Uh, just listen to this for a second. Hello and welcome to the big fight here on the stage at the London School of Economics in the interventionist corner are the Keynesians. Start again. Start again, please. Now you understand where I'm going. This is the trail. Hello and welcome to the big fight here on the stage at the London School of Economics. In the interventionist corner are the Keynesians. In the free market corner, the Hayekians. And here on Radio 4 on Wednesday night at 8, tomorrow night at 8, tomorrow night at 10.15. <laughs> You're laughing, I'm laughing, but I'm going to have to do it until nobody laughs. And here on Radio 4 on Wednesday night at 8, tomorrow night at 8, tomorrow night at 10.15, tonight at 8, tonight at 10.15. This is my job. They call it economics. They call it economics, but it's like the speaking clock. Okay. Tonight at 10.15, on Saturday night at 10.15, after the news. <laughs> and here on Radio 4, after the news, you can... And here on Radio 4, after the news, you can cheer or boo along at home and decide whose side you're on. That's the... Ha that's the Hayek versus Keynes debate with me, Paul Mason, this Wednesday at eight o'clock in the evening on this Wednesday at eight o'clock in the evening on BBC Radio Four. Tomorrow at eight o'clock in the evening on BBC Radio Four. Tonight at eight o'clock in the evening on BBC Radio Four. After the news on BBC Radio Four, and repeated on Saturday at ten fifteen in the evening. Thank you.
and good night. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Do I need to do any retakes? Right, Robert, you're going to have to give us your first line again, please. You know the first line of your entire speech. Can you just give... <laughs> la, just, give it, just say, last week, blah, blah, blah. Not, not you the need, joke again, I hope. The latest figures, because somebody talked over it. Would you mind? That's the only thing we need to do, I think. Last week... No, re, the latest no, I, figures I, from I, the office... I, I've taken this Okay. Give, let me give, let, it's just for the recording purposes. It is, being, it is a bit like being a performing artist, but there you go. It just, the latest figures from the ONS say. And then we really let you go. Shh. The latest figures from the Office of National Statistics show that the British economy is flat on its back. George Selgin, can you give us the easy money bit from your speech, please? Do you still have it? Just that bit? Yeah? I can't, I don't, which bit do you mean, guys? You slightly fluffed. That's the whole speech. Do you remember the bit where you slightly fluffed? Does anybody remember? No, the graph we don't mind, I think. I think that's going to be difficult. It's, it, it's, can you okay. tell me what it sounds? Can you hear any about, of it? About three minutes in. <laughs> He ab-libbed a lot, I'm afraid. Can you just say as the word easy money? Can we switch sides if we're going to Can you just say as the word, George, just say the word easy money. Easy money. That's easy. Now listen to this. I'm having instructions here. Just bear with me. Lord Skidelsky. This time don't answer me. Lord Skidelsky, Duncan Weldon, Jamie White, George Selgin. No. I think I may have found it. Okay. Can I try this? Please don't substitute this any old place if it's wrong, right? Check. <laughs> see, if it's, see if it's convincing and then use it. Thanks in part to easy money. The world economy today is now is experiencing a bad hangover after a wild subprime party. Is that it? That's good. Right. I think I'm, I'm getting the all clear for my colleagues up there. Can I just say to you all, thank you very much for your patience to all those people who wanted to speak. I know how it feels. Uh, thank you for coming. Thank you for people in the other halls. If you're still there, thank you. And um, keep on reading. It's all out there. It's all out there. <laughs>